man named Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, became sick. Bethany was the town where Mary and her sister Martha lived. This Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. The sisters sent Jesus the message. Lord, your dear friend is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the final result of this sickness will not be the death of Lazarus. This has happened in order to bring glory to God, and it will be the means by which the Son of God will receive glory. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he received the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Teacher, just a short time ago, the people there wanted to stone you. And are you planning to go back? The day has 12 hours, doesn't it? So those who walk in broad daylight do not stumble, for they see the light of this world. But if they walk during the night, they stumble because they have no light. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. If he is asleep, Lord, he will get well. Jesus meant that Lazarus had died, but they thought he meant natural sleep, so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not with him, so that you will believe. Let us go to him. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us all go along with the teacher, so that we may die with him. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, I, I've had a cold, and uh, you know, this morning I, I got like a feather in my throat, so sometimes, every once in a while I squeak, and if I talk too fast or whatever, so uh, I appreciate your patience with that, if uh, that becomes a dynamic this morning. But uh, this past Thursday was opening day for Major League Baseball. Did anybody care? Did anybody watch any baseball this week? Like, that's more than first service. I mean, I think there's three here and two in first, but uh, but sometimes... It feels like we're living life in the major leagues. And what I mean is that life has a way of throwing curveballs at us. And when a curveball is coming our way, you know, we're in a place of commitment. We can't just stand there at the plate undecided. You have to make a decision, you know. Do you step into a pitch? Do you trust? Uh, do you step into faith? Do you swing for the fences? Or do you just... Kind of step back, holding the back, clinging to it in fear and, and hoping that, hey, maybe something better will come along at the next pitch. And so there's a way in which life is like that. In this uh, series on the Gospel of John, we've been surveying all these different statements that Jesus makes where he tells us who he is. And at this point in John, I mean, we're getting to chapter 11 this morning, you could make a pretty substantial list of things that he has said about himself. And what happens in the Gospel of John is each chapter, he just keeps going back. He adds, there's addition every week, 
but then he goes back and he reviews and he brings in things that he's already said. So he's the good shepherd, he's the light of the world, but then he adds more, and we're going to see that this morning. But at the end of the day, regardless of what Jesus says about himself, you have to decide who he really is to you. You can't just stand in the batter's box in this neutral position clinging to your bat, right? Are you willing to trust who Jesus says he is? Are you willing to step into faith? Are you willing to put everything on the line and and swing for the fences, so to speak? In John chapter 11, there are a couple of curveballs that get thrown Jesus' closest disciples. And one of them we have spent a lot of time thinking about in John 11. If you have read the story of Lazarus, you can kind of think about Lazarus' circumstance. But there's actually two circumstances in John 11 that are important for us to talk about. And they're both curveballs in different ways. The first curveball, obviously, is the one that affects Lazarus. So in John 11, 1 through 3, it says, Now a man was sick, it was Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And he says, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, And she wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. Now that phrase, the one you love, is, is an interesting phrase, because, you know, we usually think about that applying to the gospel writer, or to the apostle John. But there was more than just one that Jesus had this kind of tender, intimate connection to. And Lazarus, in addition to the Apostle John, is one of those individuals. Uh, God, somebody you care a great deal about is not doing so well. Now, as a general rule, sickness isn't usually treated as much of a curveball. I mean, a lot of times when we're sick, we maybe shrug our shoulders you know, uh, over the last couple of years, maybe not as much. But you got the flu, no need to raise alarm, no reason to get the church on its knees in prayer, no reason to sweat this one out before God or, or get pastors involved or whatever else, right? Whenever we get sick, there's always a pretty good chance that we get well. How many times have you been sick in your life and you got well? I mean, there's a good prognosis when it comes to sickness And, you know, probably the doctor has some diagnosis, Walgreens has some medicine. There's some treatment that you can take to get you back on track pretty quick. And so our track record is pretty good when it comes to illness. But inevitably, our health throws us a curveball. And for reasons unknown, this time when Lazarus is sick, his sisters are pretty concerned about him. Maybe, you know... uh, His situation is visibly worse than they've ever seen, or there's something about it. They raise alarm. They send word to Jesus, Lord, this person, this one that you love, our brother, is sick. Now, John's, or I'm sorry, Lazarus' sisters are not strangers to Jesus or to us. There is an intimate bond between all of them and the Lord. You might remember that time back in Luke's gospel when Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha, she was the one that was distressed, and she busied herself with many chores. 
She had house guests coming. I mean, Jesus was there. The Son of God was there. But she had other people coming, and she was busy in the kitchen, busy making preparations, you know, doing whatever it was that she was doing. And, and meanwhile, you might remember indulgent Mary was sitting there while her sister was busy. She was wasting time with Jesus and wasting time being with him and worshiping him. And Martha criticizes her sister and says, shouldn't she be helping me in the kitchen, Jesus? You know, so you remember that story. Mary is also the one who anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, that hasn't happened yet in the Gospel of John. That happens at the beginning of chapter 12. But when she anoints Jesus, she doesn't do it modestly. She takes a pound of perfume and pours it out on Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, ladies, how many of you have perfume at your house? Can I see a show of hands? And how many, uh, how many pounds is the label on all the, you know, it's usually in ounces, not pounds. So this was a very extravagant thing that she does that's going to have huge implications. We'll get into it next week. But in John 12, Judas takes umbrage with her. And Judas says, hey, shouldn't she have sold that perfume and given it to the poor? So poor Mary, she's always, everyone's always got an opinion about what she should be doing and you know, that's this family, okay? In John eleven four, they sent word to Jesus, Lazarus is sick. But word comes back from Jesus, and he says, this sickness will not end in death. It will not result. The final outcome of it will not be death. But it's for the glory of God what's happening so that the Son of God may be glorified through that circumstance. In other words, life is about to throw you this huge curveball. But what's happening is happening so that God might be glorified through it, through the sickness, through the circumstance that you're going to face. Uh, you might notice that the way Jesus responds to Mary and Martha is not unlike the way he responded to his disciples Back in John chapter 9, just a chapter ago, when they asked about the blind man, do you remember when they said to Jesus, you know, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said it's neither because of his sin nor because of his parents' sin that he was born blind. And we looked at how Jesus answers that pretty consistently, that whenever people think that, hey, the reason someone's sick or they have a condition or things aren't going well for them, uh, maybe God doesn't love them, maybe they're less righteous, Jesus buries all of that. And what he says in John 9 is that what's happened is so that the work of God might be put on display in the blind man's life. And what he says to the sisters is that what's about to happen is also going to be happening in order to put God's glory on display. Now, whenever God wants to put his glory on display, whenever God does a work, we often think, okay, here's a blind man. His condition is that he's blind, and the work that God wants to do is make him see. And so we celebrate, okay, the work of God in the blind man's life is that he can see physically. But in John 6, 29, Jesus declares that the work of God is actually deeper than just the physical. That when God does a work, when he brings glory to himself, it's so that we would believe and have a deeper 
confidence and reliance in God than what we'd otherwise have. The work of God is that people believe. All right, so the blind man can see, mission accomplished, right? No. The blind man can see, he now understands that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's been sent from God. Ah, when he believes, that's the work of God for which the sign was to bring about that result. What's about to happen to Lazarus? He's sick. He's going to get well. Mission accomplished. No. There's going to be a deeper effect to what happens to Lazarus that's going to profoundly affect folks. That what's about to happen to Lazarus is going to supercharge everyone's faith, not just the disciples. It's going to send shockwaves all the way throughout Judea, Jerusalem, and, and, and further. So when life throws you a curveball, you know, the curveball itself, as much as we want that taken care of, there's something deeper that God wants to do. Lazarus is sick, but the second curveball in John 11 is in verses 5 through 7. We're told Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's just lay that one to rest. What's happening isn't because God doesn't love somebody. The sickness they have, the struggle that they have, the curveball, it, it has no reason whatsoever or any bearing on whether a person is loved by God or not. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they're all loved by God, all right? But when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Jesus changed his plans uh, in order to, to remain in the area, but then after that, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now, Lazarus, he was from Bethany. And Jesus lingered around, but he says, let's go to Judea. All right? Now, the reason that this is a curveball is because the disciples are very worried about the temperature in Jerusalem. Jesus just healed the blind man back in Jerusalem, back in Judea, right, on the Passover. And it infuriated all the Pharisees and all the teachers. They wanted to kill Jesus because they didn't know what to do with him. They had this blind man that everybody knew was blind, standing around telling everybody, I was blind, but now I can see. And he wouldn't shut up. He just kept saying this. And his popularity and, and the credibility of that miracle, it was affecting everyone. Everybody was hunting Jesus down. And that's on top of other signs and miracles that he'd done. The disciples are worried about the temperature. So in verse 8, their curveball, their crisis is, uh, Jesus, just now the Jews tried to stone you and, and uh, you're wanting to go back there again? Like we just left this fever pitch. You know, they had stones in there and, and you want to go right back? Uh, are you crazy? You know, Let's get out of Dodge while we can get out of Dodge. We should be getting as far away from Jerusalem as possible and Judea, not going back there. It's too dangerous. Our lives are in danger of persecution. Now, the disciples probably knew Lazarus and his sisters. They should have probably been concerned about Lazarus and his sisters. But they're worried about their own well-being. And that's their issue. And both of these issues are in the forefront here in John 11, not just the grief situation, but the danger part as well. And whether it's in sickness or in death or whether it's in danger, 
there's a scope to in which uh, there's a scope of curveballs that we experience in life to which our faith must be fortified to meet, and that is what's going on in John chapter 11. Now, life, I don't need to tell you this, life doesn't allow us, it doesn't allow our faith to be merely academic. A lot of times, you know, we believe all these things about Jesus, and there's all these propositions and doctrines and nice things that we say in our songs and our prayers, uh, answers to Sunday school questions about who Jesus is. But life doesn't allow us to treat our faith in merely a rote way or an academic way. And so what happens in life is that we have these curveballs, and we have to decide, what are we going to do with our faith? Are we going to bring our faith to bear on these curveballs and on these very real circumstances we face in life? Or are we going to keep our faith compartmentalized back over here where it doesn't really have any, you know, like, we'll, we'll let our faith deal with things that are small ball, like our finances, for example. But here's matters of life and death. I could die, okay? But that's major leagues. I'll do small ball with my faith. I'm not going to get in the major leagues over here with these really big life and death, you know, kinds of things. That's where a lot of folks, that's how they use their faith. They, they, they use it in trivial, insignificant, or less significant things, but they don't bring it to bear on the major things. Well, in John 11, Jesus says to his disciples, Aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, Jesus has been using this metaphor now for several chapters. He's the light of the world. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. And when you're walking with Jesus and you're walking with the light of the world, it's like you're walking during the daytime. You're not going to stumble. Like everything that comes along, you know your way through it. If you're following Jesus, you're going to be okay. Whether we go to Judea, whether we go to Jerusalem, wherever we go, Jesus is saying, like, I'm the light of the world. I'm the life. You're you're good. I got you, right? But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. If you're trying to do things without me, I can understand your fear and your concern. But because I'm the light of the world and I'm walking with you, you really have nothing to worry about. Now, uh, in verse 11, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He just spoke to their fear of death. Now he's going to speak to the thing with Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. This is the chosen way that the New Testament, after Jesus, chooses to see death. Is that here's a person that's died. A faith perspective in Jesus is that the person's asleep. And when a person's asleep, they may look like they're dead there, but they're going to awake again later on, right? That's the, the way Christians understand death. But the way the world looks at death is not as that someone's sleeping. The world looks at death as final. That person's not going to wake up. They're dead. Their body has begun to decay. Their heart has stopped. Their brain activity, their spirit's gone, whatever it is, they're dead. And there's nothing that could possibly be done about it. So they're not just sleeping, they're dead. But Jesus says, Lazarus 
is sleeping. I'm going to go wake him up. Now, the disciples, they're kind of dull, and they don't pick up on the metaphor of the idea of death being temporary in any kind of way and a person recovering from it or being resurrected from it or anything. They don't have any concept of that. So they don't understand, but then Jesus just flat out tells them that, uh, that, that Lazarus has died, and he tells them very plainly. In verse 15, he says, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't there so that you might believe, so that you might believe. But let's go over and see our buddy Lazarus. You know, those aren't exactly the words that you expect to hear out of Jesus' mouth. It's like, hey, this thing has happened, and, uh, you know, it's good that it's happened. Because uh, if it hadn't happened, your faith might be here. But instead, I'm kind of glad because now your faith is going to go here. Like, if I would have showed up and Lazarus was sick and I helped him, you know, that might have bolstered your faith a little. But the fact that he got sick, the fact that he died, what's about to happen, I'm kind of glad it happened because your faith really needs to be here and not just here. You know, so, so what's about to happen is going to be huge, right? Now, Thomas, in verse 16, says to the other disciples, hey, let's go with Jesus too that we may die with him. Now, I know Thomas gets a lot of bad press, but if you, if you read these verses slowly, you know, Thomas kind of has the same bravado that Peter had. Remember Peter? He's like, hey, you know, if you're going to go to Jerusalem and have to die, we'll die with you with our swords in our hand. We are brave, you know, men, and, and we will die with you, right? But then when Jesus is arrested and all this, you know, there's a woman, a little girl at the burning barrel, and he can't even tell her that he's a follower of Jesus, much less the Roman centurions and whoever else, right? So Peter, he had a false front. He, 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 he looked like he was going to have a lot of courage. But then when the circumstance came, you know, I'm not faulting him. He cowered in fear and ran. Thomas here says, hey, let's go and die with our teacher if that's what's going to happen. But later, obviously, Thomas, like Peter, uh, wavered and he became doubting Thomas and his legacy kind of changed a little bit. But, but uh but, but everything that's about to happen isn't just for Lazarus, it's for the disciples. Lazarus was sick when he died, and his family was grieving, and so what's about to happen is going to speak to that curveball. But the disciples' headspace is that following Jesus is a life and death matter, that we, that we could die from stoning, we could die from crucifixion, we could die from whatever the consequences culturally are of us believing in Jesus. And, and, and are we ready to face that curveball if that were to go down? A lot of people think, yeah, I'd die for Jesus. But when push comes to shove, you might be like a Thomas, you might be like a Peter, you know, you may not be as ready to stand in your faith as you think you are. All right, so the camera lens moves to Martha in John 11, verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, right in the shadow of Jerusalem. Many of the Jews that had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them, uh, had come to them to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
So I don't know if that's like an implied criticism of Mary, you know, but maybe it is. Who knows? But she always seems to be on the uh, short end of the stick there with, with uh, people saying, yeah, she's still at the house or whatever it is. But here's Martha. And she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Remember, Martha's kind of the hyperactive sister and, and Mary's more contemplated, uh, contemplated. Maybe Mary's back at home and maybe she's more resigned or, you know, we don't know. But Martha is up on her feet. She's out the door to confront Jesus. And her question seems to be very common and very familiar to us. Jesus, if you had been here for me, this wouldn't have happened. How many of you have ever been in that headspace when life threw you a curveball? God, if you had been here, then this wouldn't be going on. This wouldn't have happened. But God, you weren't there for me, and therefore now we have an escalated situation. It's even worse than it could be. Uh, Martha appears to be trying to reconcile the goodness of God with the curveball that she's been thrown. You know, she knows that Jesus loves her too, and Mary, and that Jesus loved Lazarus, and that's not really in question in this passage. I mean, how many times do we have to be told that Jesus loved them and that everybody knew that Jesus loved this family? It wasn't about the love or, or, or even the goodness of God in regards to this particular relationship. Jesus loved this family. So, so how do you start to feel about a loving God, but you realize if God had been here, maybe things would have been different. Like, how do you reconcile the idea of the goodness and love of God with the reality of the curveball that you're being thrown in? That's the place of faith. But her question also seems to relate to the greatness of God. You know, Jesus has the authority to lay down his life and take it back up. Remember, he's not just a good shepherd, he's a great shepherd, John chapter 10. Well, how do you reconcile the greatness of God with also the curveball that's been thrown your way? You know, did Martha and Mary pray for their brother? They called out to Jesus. They sent for Jesus. They sent word to him. Like, what more did they need to do to affect a miracle or a healing for their brother? And no matter what their efforts were in the face of the sickness, it seems to have resulted in death. And how many times have you been in that situation where it's like, you know, I know God loves me, and I know God's great. I know it theoretically, you know, I, I, I can say those things, and I know prayer should have power, but my prayers aren't changing this situation. And, 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 and God, I know you hear, you know, Jesus, I know that the Father hears your prayers, but he hasn't heard ours. So th this is the headspace that Martha's in. And she's being very blunt and very open with Jesus. Now, in verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, yeah, yeah, I know. I've heard this before. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Uh, now, when I read this, I think of how we often deal with the curveballs in life. You know, we have this faith, and yeah, I know God loves me. And we say that. 
But we kind of have a little bit of skepticism and doubt about it because we're like, if God loves me so much, then why am I going through this? If God loves me so much, he would have been here to help me on my timeline and things would be different. If God's so good, why is this so painful? Why is this grief here? Why is this loss occurring then? And if God's so great, how do I tap into that power? And so we have this same struggle, right? And, and the way we often, we throw around phrases and like, yeah, I know about the resurrection and I know we should have hope in God and, and theoretically he's more powerful than death and there's a, you know. But, but Jesus isn't looking for us to say something with our mouth that we don't have conviction about in our heart. And it seems like as believers, a lot of times we say a lot of stuff with our mouth, but we really haven't been taken by that truth deep in our heart. And so we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. So Jesus says to her, Martha, he probably had to do this to get her attention. Martha, I don't care about all the theological jargon and all, like, listen, I am the resurrection in the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You're not understanding who I am as I stand before you. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Not just in an academic sense, but do you really understand that you're standing before the God of the universe who has the goodness and love to do this, but also has the greatness and power and the authority to do something that no one has ever seen before? Do you believe that on the resurrection and the life, and not just mouthing that, but really from your heart believing? Yes, Lord, she told him. And then she does the same thing again. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. That's the right answer. But you kind of wonder, has she really been struck by the profound implications that Jesus is the one that's come from the Father and has been sent into the world? Is she just saying that or is she understanding the implications that this is God Almighty and he can do something with this curveball that's never, ever happened before? And the disciples... What do they believe about Jesus? Can they lay their life down for Jesus truly? And does he have the authority to take their life back up in persecution and death? Do we really believe that? Or do we just say we believe that? What about Mary? Verse 28, we come to Mary, camera. Having said this, Martha went back and called her sister Mary and says to her in private, the teacher is here. And he's calling for you. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but not Savior of the world, not the resurrection and the life, the teacher is here for you. There's some information, you know, some propositional truths, some, some stuff that we need to be kind of like told to comfort us and to encourage us. The teacher's here. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house were consoling her. 
And uh, they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, so they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb in order to, to mourn. As soon as Mary got to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, she's in the near identical headspace as her sister, isn't she? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. God, if you had been there for me on our timeline, we'd be in a wholly different situation. Now, I was reading this last week in the New York Times, and they had this feature where they were interviewing all these different clergy in New York about lessons learned over the last couple of years with the pandemic. I was like, this sounds really interesting. What is the different perspectives that pastors uh, have come to learn and, and how have they kind of sorted through everything? Like, and so I was curious. I started reading the article. And uh, one of the individuals interviewed was a Hindu pastor, a Hindu clergy person. And the Hindu person says, you know, the thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is that there's a lot of negative energy in the world and it needs to be counterbalanced with positive energy. So we've been kind of renewed in our focus about how do we bring positive energy into this negative world so that disease and sickness is driven out and we're not afflicted so severely by things. And so the Hindu, that, that was his lesson learned over the last couple of years. I was like, oh, I kind of expect a, a Hindu to do the yin and yang thing or whatever. But then they had a Muslim, uh, a, past, a clergy person that talked about the last couple of years. And it struck me that this Islamic clergy person sounds like a lot of Christian pastors today because he said, you know, the thing that we've learned over the last couple of years is that we need to do justice. And so here's this pandemic, and you've got all these families hunkered down, and there's so much domestic violence. And, and we have raised millions and millions of dollars to bring encouragement to people afflicted by domestic violence over the last couple of years. And that has been our focal point in our work that we've done in the face of the pandemic. That's like, that's good that you're helping people, but that's the biggest thing, right, that you've come to terms with during the pandemic is doing good deeds. That's not bad. I'll take it over nothing. But so then uh, they, they turned to all these Christian pastors and they had like three or four of them and they all had different ornamental gowns on and stuff. I'm like, maybe I should like, you know, get some kind of a special, you know, outfit or something. But no, I just want to dress like this. I don't want to, you know. But anyway, they all have different titles and they're all part of different groups that I've never heard of before. So I have no idea, you know, but they're Christian pastors or Christian clergy. And I'm like, okay, what lessons have you learned over the last several years? And they started talking and, and one was like, we've learned the power of touch that we were physically separated from each other and unable to touch each other and, and, and shake hands and, and, and put our arms around each other and just be physically present with other people in need. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I think we all felt that, right? And another person said, you know, we've learned uh, how much greater it is to do like the Eucharist or to do the different religious things together, like you can flick water at the camera, but it's not the same as flicking water on a person and doing your, your ritual or your liturgy with, with the body gathered. And so that was kind of the big takeaway 
that that person had. And I'm listening to, and I'm like, okay, is there anybody over the last couple of years that has come to terms with the fact that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Has, has anybody come to terms with the reality and the substance of, of who Christ is and how important it is that he says to us that our sickness, COVID, whatever it is, will not ultimately end in death, that we have a hope in the face of, like, I don't know about you, but that reality of Jesus being the resurrection and the life is the thing that I've had to get my mind around and pray about, and that, that truth, that reality of God, right, that's the hope that has carried this pastor through. But most of the answers uh, kind of went back to empathy and, and different things like that. Now, I want to say, when Jesus calls us to faith, he doesn't call us to believe in a vacuum of pain in the absence of suffering, in, the, in a vacuum of death. When he calls us to believe, he's calling the disciples to believe in the very face of real danger and death, in the presence of their enemies. When God calls us to believe, Jesus, it's in the face of suffering. It's in the face of pain, in the face of sickness, in the face of these curveballs that get thrown us by life. We are called to a faith in the valley, in the shadow of death, in the presence of our enemies. So whatever we think about faith, it's to carry us through the very hardest realities that we encounter in life. Now, there's a paradox to faith. On the one hand, Jesus does come alongside us. God is Emmanuel amongst us. He is God dwelling amongst us, walking alongside us. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is empathetic. He truly weeps with us. That he doesn't dismiss the curveballs. He doesn't dismiss the struggles of faith. He doesn't dismiss the anguish we feel when we're sick or our bodies are failing us in some way. Jesus doesn't dismiss the utter terror that death can bring. In John 11, we see the goodness and love, that empathy, that identification of Jesus with us in our suffering. And it seems like that's where the headspace of a lot of us is, but sometimes stops wrongly. These clergy, you know, the identification with people and pain and suffering and sorrow. A plus, awesome, great. But is there more than that? When Jesus, in John 11, verse 33, saw Mary and Martha crying, and when he saw the Jews that had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was troubled. He entered into the reality of that situation with them emotionally. And so when a Christian comes across a person weeping, the proper place is for us is to weep with those who weep. And to mourn with those who mourn. That's what the Bible says, right? And, and we are to have that kind of empathy. And we are to have that kind of responsiveness to one another. Where have you put him, Jesus asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And right here, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, oh, look how much he loved Lazarus. You know, if we don't weep with those who weep, we might be seen as kind of cold, kind of indifferent, People might even question if we're loving, right? There's a place for empathy. But what if our gospel were to stop with just pure empathy? 
You know, like, if we stop with empathy, people might trust the goodness of God, but they won't know the greatness of God. And so there's something more than just weeping. I don't want to minimize weeping. I remember when my dad passed away, there's people, they would come along and they would, you know, you'd be weeping or like you'd really be trying to deal with whatever, your loss. And people would be kind of dismissive. They were uncomfortable with questions of death. And so they would be dismissive and they would say, oh, well, you know, your dad's in heaven. It's all good. Like, how's your week? You know, how's this thing over here? How's the fish biting or whatever? It's like, wait a minute. You know, weep with those who weep. Don't be cold. Don't be indifferent. Don't be transactional. You know, people need you to come alongside them in their anguish and their struggle, right? But we don't just stop there. People also need to see the greatness and power, the victory and hope that is available. And so here's the other half of the equation. Too late from our perspective is never too late for God ever. Like if you'd been here for me, God, on my terms, on my timeline, too late for us is never too late for God. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, I weep with you and I mourn with you. But don't forget who I am. I'm the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, even if you die, you shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never never die. Do you believe this? Our sickness may end in death from our vantage point, but one day or two days or, in Jesus' case, three days or in Lazarus, four days, but one day the resurrection and the life is going to arrive at our graveside. And it's going to be a completely different reality. For God, in death, after death, is never too late. Death itself is not too limiting. In fact, Jesus says, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't here and that all this has happened. Not because I like to see you weeping and grieving, but because I want you to go from here to here in your faith. And, And maybe your level of faith is God loves me and God weeps with me. And we need to weep with each other. But maybe your faith needs to be here, which is, yeah, we do weep together. But we have a real resurrection, tangible, physical, bodily hope that God's not just going to leave us in our grief. He's going to raise us from the grave. You see the difference? Maybe it's good that these things come along because they teach us to trust God this much and not for just the small ball stuff. Right? Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He's still grieving. He's acknowledging the reality of this. And he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. And Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's such a stench. You know, uh, his body has been dead four days. This isn't a woman who's prepared for what is about to happen, is it? Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's going to be many of us one day when Christ returns as the resurrection of life, and he's going to say the same thing to us. He's going to say, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? So they remove the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but because of these folks here, I have to say this out loud so that they would believe that you sent me. Like, really believe. Not just with their mouth, but with their heart. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. He's so practical there, isn't he? Yeah, unwrap him. Okay, obvious, yeah. Thank you, uh, Dr. Obvious. Thank you, Divine Obvious. But, uh, but unwrap him and let him go. You know, if the blind man's testimony sent ripples and shockwaves to Jerusalem, I was blind, but now I can see. What might this man's testimony have been? I was buried, but now I'm raised. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was decaying, but now I'm resurrected. I was sick and fearful of death, and I died, but the resurrection and life came by my side. His testimony would really shock Jerusalem, and we'll get into that next week. But I hope in faith we're being taught what it looks like to wait in resurrection hope. Here's our timeline and our arbitrary ideas about the goodness and greatness of God and and the limits of it. But then there's the resurrection and life and the reality of who Jesus is. The reality is that he's the good shepherd that lays down his life for us. And he has the authority to take not just his life back up, but our life back up. So he's not just a good, weeping, empathetic, identifying, sympathetic God, but he's a great God. And our faith needs to go from here to here as we stake everything on this resurrection hope. So I pray as Easter approaches, we understand the implications Not just the doctrine, but the hard implications of of living in light of this hope. Dear Father, we come to you and we ask that you stir us and move us by your spirit. And that we not just announce things with our mouth, but we believe them in our heart. That you raised Jesus from the grave. And you will raise us up too through that same faith. We pray that we anchor our lives as life throws us curveballs. We anchor our lives in these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.